Hello and welcome to the Focus Seedcast. I'm your host, Focus, and today I'm talking with Carl of CityLine Florist. Carl is a fourth-generation florist and also has a small cutflower garden at his family's business. Our conversation covers a bunch of topics. We start with how I got the name Focus. We move on to Carl's cutflower garden. We talk about the cultivation and use of tobacco, a little bit about cannabis, as well as biodynamics and some other esoteric subjects. Unfortunately, since recording this episode, Carl's Instagram page was deleted, but since then he's made a new one, so if you'd like to follow him, you can find him at Carl Magnus, E-I-B-M-G. That's Carl, K-A-R-L, Magnus, M-A-G-N-U-S, E-I-B-M-G. Without any further delay, let's get into this episode. So how's it going, Carl? Great focus. Thanks for uh, inviting me, first of all. Yeah, yeah. We've been chatting online for a little while, and you're actually local to me, so I thought it'd be cool if we could uh, if we could chat. Um, so local, you want local? We are local, uh, within probably even less than an hour driving distance, but we're a full zone uh, yeah. different. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true. Because you're down in Fairfield County, right? Fairfield County, O six six one one Trumbull. Um, like 10 minutes from Long Island Sound. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're, you're real close then. Yeah. I didn't know you were, yeah. you were that close to the, uh, to the yeah. coast there. Right yeah. next to Bridgeport. Next to Bridgeport. Yeah. Oh, so nice. you have a great, you have a great podcast. I'm really glad you invited me on. And, uh, I do want to mention too, for anyone listening, um, I still haven't gone through the whole catalog because you've been doing this podcast for looks like a couple of years now. Yeah, like a uh, yeah, a year and a half now, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, but yeah, the seed saving crash course has so much great information in there for anybody of any level of uh, gardening, beginner to master gardener. Um, so I definitely, uh, definitely, highly recommend that uh, that one too. And it's really accessible. That one I think is like what twenty five minutes or something like that. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I actually do that one as like a lecture. I did it over the summer, and I'll be doing it again at the Connecticut, uh, which is South Southeastern Conne- uh, Connecticut Home and Garden Show in February. So I'll be I'll be wonderful. doing that talk there. Yep. So I wonder too. I don't know if you've shared it on any prior uh, podcasts, and I know you've you've mentioned it to me, but I wonder if you'd share it for me again and any of your listeners why you chose the name Focus. Oh, okay. We can start out with that. I was going to have a uh, start out with uh, you introducing yourself, but I could do that. Um, Focus is the name that I was uh, baptized. Um, that's my, my Christian name that I was baptized with when I joined the Orthodox church. Um, so I'm named after St. Focus of Sinope, who was a, um, he was a saint. And I want, I want to say this, uh, probably like in the fourth century, fourth or fifth century. Um, yeah. And he was known for being a gardener and being, um, very hospitable. So (laughs) I I hope I'm hospitable, but yeah. So I got, I got my namesake from him since I'm also a gardener and farmer. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, well, uh, my name, I think that's so interesting too. And then also too, would you tell me too, how he was martyred? Yeah, so that's an interesting story. Um, during that time, Christians were persecuted by the uh, Roman government. So he was known in the area to kind of grow food for people and let them stay at his house uh, when they needed, you know, a place to stay. And, you know, word spread that he was a Christian and 
some Roman soldiers showed up at his house one day. They were kind of like looking for him, but they didn't know it was his house. So he invited them in. Um, the story goes, he gave them dinner. You know, he talked with them and then he gave them a room to sleep for the night. And he told them in the morning, you know, I'll, I'll go bring you over to this guy, focus. And um, uh, so during the night while they were sleeping, he went out and he dug his own grave in the back because he basically knew like these people are going to kill him. Um, in the morning, um, he told them that, yep, I'm the guy, you know, my grave is out back. So do what you have to do. And yeah, they, they, um, they killed him. And then afterwards it was said that like all four of the soldiers or how many there were, um, were like, they couldn't, they couldn't go back to Rome. They felt really bad about doing it. Um, and they ended up converting to Christianity and, uh, leaving the Roman army. So yeah, he's, he's known as a, as a martyr. So it's pretty so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting story. Got, you know, we have a lot of crazy things going on in the world today and it's, and it's just, it's, you know, to me, even though the story, many people would see it as kind of like, you know, kind of like, why would anyone ever do that? I, I see it as very hopeful though. Somebody would not, you know, they wouldn't give away their faith, what they believed in for anything. And even though they knew that they were going to die, that, that really didn't phase them. You know, they went to their death happily and, you know, and out of it, became, you know, came that these four people were, you know, forgiven by God and became Christians. So, and who knows what they went on to do? I don't, I don't know, but you know, one, one person helping people, feeding people in their community and people, you know, for whatever reason, didn't like that he was killed. And then even greater things came from that. So yeah. And now he's a saint and, and, you know, has inspired me and other people. So yeah. And that was, that was over a thousand years ago. So yeah, it's, it's, I look at it as very inspirational. Well, I always wondered what what your name stood for meant. And when you first shared that story with me, it was inspirational to me as well. Yeah. So thanks for sharing all that. So to tell you about me, my name is Carl. Um, I'm actually a fourth generation florist. My great grandfather, <clears throat> when he came home to um, Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1918 from World War One. He didn't have a, a home, a job, any money, any family. And so he started uh, selling African violets and uh, carnations and uh, Dusty Miller plants that he was propagating himself in a cemetery uh, down here. And he saved up money and bought a, a horse to pull his wagon and eventually a greenhouse and numerous other greenhouses. In the 70s, my grandfather moved to our current location where we're at now, and um, you know, my father still works every day. But so we're a retail flower shop. Um, however, on the property, um, we do have a couple acres, and um, you know, I I keep a a, a pretty decent sized flower garden. I've got 200. This past year, I had 200 stakes in the ground, each one with a dahlia plant. Um, so that was a tremendous amount of dahlias that we grew. Zinnias, I grow a lot of, uh, sunflowers. This year I actually grew, uh, tobacco for the very first time. Um, and I got my seeds from you focus and I'm going to have to, after our podcast is over, place my order for seeds this year. And I was pretty happy to, to see your selection, uh, on the website of seeds is like, it's got to be three times what it was last season. Uh, so I'm looking forward to going through that. And, um, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, I guess, you know, I looked into actually buying a tractor this year, um, a Kubota, because I have, uh, I, I have some, some uh, grass back there that I want to lift it up and I want to put some new rows in and expand my gardens. But I don't know. I went out and I test drove the tractor and when I was on it, it was really fun and it was really cool. But then I was thinking like, realistically, how many hours am I going to be on this machine? And let me look into first pricing out renting a machine or even just hiring a company to come out and do that. Um, but I've also been following on, uh, on Instagram focus, your greenhouse, um, uh, and it's, or your, I guess a hoop house. Yeah. Yeah. So it, um, I got this farmer's friend, like hoop house, caterpillar tunnel kind of thing. Um, they're not really made to be like traditional greenhouses, but since I got it used and I got a deal on it, I was like, well, the frame is basically the same as a traditional kind of like, you know, high tunnel Quonset style greenhouse. And I was like, I'll just build end walls on it and, you know, cover old plastic and throw a furnace in there and see, uh, <laughs> see how well it does. And yeah, it's been, it's been working so far. Uh, I don't have the furnace well, what, hooked up yet, but um, it's been staying warm. Okay. Was, well, do you know what your temperature is outdoors right now and what the temperature is inside the unheated tube house? Yeah. Yeah. I can actually, I got, um, I have like the a sun nice. sun is shining brightly. So, I mean, it might. Yeah, I have, I have, a, uh, yeah, I got the temperature hooked up. I got a Wi-Fi uh, uh, thermostat system. So it is uh, 26 degrees outside right now and it is 60 degrees in the greenhouse. So, you know, not, it's not, not bad at all for being, you know, two o'clock and it's, you know, it's been cold too. It's been holding like maybe anywhere between five to 10 degrees warmer um, inside than outside, even during the nighttime when there's no sun. So I have to, I have to actually, once I get more stuff in there too, it'll hold temp a little bit better but did i see you've sown winter greens already in there yeah yeah i did a couple i did like four 20 gallon uh fabric bags which is some like stuff for for me and the family growing some scallions and uh baby kale lettuce some bok choy just you know just for fun um i'll see kind of i just sewed them now i'll see what comes up when it comes up and yeah i've done winter greens in the past i've done like a lot of micro greens so i thought i'd you know feed myself first and then uh be a yeah. good trial run to see how well everything does in there but but yeah i wanted to get back to like what you were saying about um growing growing flowers how, how did you do with that you were out there harvesting them and then using them for arrangements and stuff like that yeah so dahlias uh and you know it's pretty cool i i in the very same spot where my grandfather kept uh, a garden is where i currently grow and he over years and years of tilling, I, you know, I've tried the no-till method too, but uh, where this garden is like right now, uh, when the ground freezes, uh, we have uh, we have our part-time, especially for like the holidays, employees park right on the garden. So I got to retill it each year because it gets compacted. But I mean, when I drop the tiller in, I sink down like a foot. There's like very few stones in there and he's just over years and years, there's added peat moss. Uh, one amendment that I like is green sand. Um, and I use a uh, uh, straw as a uh, mulch 
thickly, really thick straw. And then at the end of the season, when you got to lift the dahlias, uh, I chop that up with a lawnmower. So that soil is constantly getting amended, but dahlias are the biggest crop that I grow um, for a few reasons. <clears throat> One is retail. Each flower could be $6 up to a dinner plate, a giant dinner plate, especially if uh, uh really popular, but some somewhat rare variety like Cafe Olay, where the tubers alone for a three pack of tubers could be like, you know, 30 something bucks. Each flower alone could retail for 12 bucks, 15 uh, retail. But dahlias are so sensitive that if you buy them from a wholesaler, even though they've sat in a cold, uh, cold refrigerator at 36 degrees, incidentally too, that's what we keep our refrigerators here at the uh, retail florist, 36 degrees. Uh, we keep our refrigerator, but when the dahlias come in from the growers or the wholesalers, dahlias only have like a five, maybe six day uh, base life. And you know, those first two or three days, the flowers, they never look good coming in. But when you go out and cut them fresh, right out of the garden each morning and put them into the vase. They really look spectacular. So that's the two reasons why that's the, the main crop. But every year, the dahlia, I don't know if you've ever grown them, but it is back-breaking work. Every May, early June, I'm out there cursing. This is the last year I'm doing it. It's, it's back-breaking work. I, you know, I'm sore for a week after putting them in. And uh, this year I'm going to expand it because fortunately now I do have a team of high school and college guys. Um, audio on? Sorry, I had a call come in. Yeah, yeah. No, you're good. You're good. Um, but yeah, it's. I always say that it's uh, so much work and I'll never do it again. And then when the first uh, blooms start coming in, I always say, oh, this is so worth it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I've actually, um, I've grown dahlias now for actually years. Um, not on my own farm, but, um, I work with a horticultural company, um, in Litchfield County and, um, they do a lot of estate work. So it's a lot of a uh, garden install and, and design and maintenance, and they do a ton of dahlias, um, every year. So I usually help them with that. And yeah, so we've done like, like you were saying, like these real rare uh, varieties, like cafe LA, I've grown cafe LA, like for three or four years now. Yeah. A lot of these tubers, you know, you buy in there. Yeah. In between like 30 and $60 for, for a few small tubers. And then, you know, you're, you're potting them up in the greenhouse, you know, cause we want to get big plants. So we're potting them up. I want, I want to say like, usually like the first week of March or something like that. And then growing these pretty big plants that we're planting out. And then, you know, all the training that goes into them, all the deadheading that goes into them, making sure that, you know, you're harvesting them regularly, especially before it's going to rain and stuff like that. Cause those flowers will just kind of like, you like, Oh, if it, if you get a heavy rain or something, all those flowers just kind of like the petals just like melt off the plant. So yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of maintenance. Um, they're also, not only are they edible for humans, the tubers, but also for animals. So I don't know if you have to deal with a lot of uh, like groundhog and, and uh, you know, like rodent pressure and stuff like that. Cause it's something we always have a problem with, especially early in the year. 
So no groundhogs because uh, I did have a groundhog like five, six years ago, but I bought a, a, a plant called mole plant. Uh, and it has, I guess, something that's very, the roots are irritating to groundhogs and moles. Um, and that's pretty cold hardy too. It's, some of the plants have either gone to seed and spread or um, so they just plant them off sort of near like brush piles or whatever. <clears throat> and that'll, uh, that might help with that. But uh, no, fortunately with the dahlias, no problems with slugs, no problems with uh, uh, deer eating the, um, the plants. Uh, towards the end of the season, the cucumber beetles start to sort of get in them. But, uh, you know, I've never eaten a tuber, <clears throat> but I really actually um, enjoy eating flowers. I really enjoy eating a number of edible flowers. In fact, uh, I eat a, one dandelion a day once I see them. And when I, every morning when I wake up and go to work, I pluck one dandelion and eat the yellow petals. But uh, dahlia petals are also edible. And I've wanted to do this for years and I missed it again this season, but I've wanted to take a huge dinner plate dahlia and uh, dredge it in an egg wash and then do the flour and the breadcrumbs and fry it. And I think I would imagine you flip it over. You, it's like you go to uh, what's that Ruby Tuesdays or TGI Fridays and you get the awesome blossom or they do that with the Vidalia onion. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so I wonder if that would turn out. But have you ever eaten a dahlia petal? To me, it tastes like a cucumber skin or an apple skin. No, actually, I haven't. Um, I'll have to do that. I have tried the tubers. Um, they're not super tasty just because they really haven't been bred for flavor. There's some people that are actually working on that, but they, they have the you know consistency of a, like a potato or something. Um, but yeah, it's, it's more of like, I would say like a cucumber-ish flavor. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I agree that's interesting. With you. I agree. I grew a new variety this year. I had 50 plants of them called chocolate karma dahlia, deep burgundy color. Almost some of them were nearly black, uh, dark, dark burgundy brown. And it, some of them had a heavy fragrance of chocolate. I don't know how they did it, but the oh. dahlia had a chocolate fragrance. Did, did it, did you try any of the petals? Did they taste chocolatey at all or sweet or anything? tasted like nothing like yeah. faint cucumber water um other edible flowers that i like sunflower petals yep uh nasturtium i adore nasturtium that's one of my favorite plants because the entire thing is edible um i'm not sure about the roots but i'd imagine the roots are edible but the leaves the stems the flowers the green seeds the hard uh Dried seeds could be ground up like uh, peppercorn. Uh, what else is edible? Um, bachelor buttons, but those don't really have much taste. Calendula. Um, I really like growing calendula, uh, not only for uh, it reseeds. I mean, you plant it once and it reseeds forever, really. But I've made a uh, like a hair oil out of calendula petals that I've harvested. Uh, I don't know if you, I, I read that like you look at the back of like all the expensive uh, face lotions and like the healing serums that are like 40 bucks at CVS and like the number one or number two ingredient on the back is calendula extract. 
Okay. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. I know it's, it's well known as being like, you know, medicinal and, and a healing kind of uh, plant, especially the flower. So yeah, but yeah, it's cool. Um, so for, so for the dahlias, do you like you're, so you're propagating them yourself every year, like you're saying you're, you're overwintering the tubers. Well, that's another thing too. Then you got to dig them up. Yeah. And then, you, and then you got to store them and no matter how many methods uh, I've tried, I always lose like 15, 20% of them just from shriveling up or getting moldy. Uh, you know, whether you, you know, wash them really well or hit them with the brush and, uh, and pack them in uh, peat moss or pack them in sawdust or damp newspaper, or all that. I just dig them up. I shake off the dirt that I can. I let them sit for one day in the shade in the back of the greenhouse. And then I just put them in cardboard boxes. Now, fortunately we do have a bulb cellar. We do have a dirt floor bulb cellar, but that's where they go just on cinder blocks off the ground. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it works. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing too. We, we have, it's always a mad scramble to, get everything out, get it organized, get it somewhere where it's in a good, you know, environment. Cause you don't want them too warm. Cause then they'll, you know, push growth. You don't want them too cold. Cause they can't, you know, get too cold. It'll damage the, the tuber, but yeah, they're, they're, they're tricky, but yeah, I think we have about the same success rate. That seems to kind of be the general, you know, the general rate is like, you'll lose, you know, at least 10%, but we always do a ton of them. So we always have more than enough. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know how these, like how all these, I guess that's why they're so expensive, you know, cause they're, they're, they are pretty difficult to propagate. I mean, I wouldn't say difficult, but they just take a long time. Like they take an entire growing season to get a nice clump of healthy tubers. And so, yeah, it makes sense to me why they're 30 to $40 for, for a few, you know, tubers, especially if it's a, a new variety or something that's pretty unique. Yeah, I don't like, I don't even grow the cafe Olay anymore because even it's an expensive one and it's not a big producer. I mean, out of a whole growing season, I mean, I would get like maybe four big, I mean, it's a beautiful showy, but I mean, compared to, I could have another ball dahlia plant in that place that's going to produce like 60 usable flowers through the whole season, one plant, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely interested to see how you do with expanding your garden. Uh, so you want to do more dahlias or you're thinking about trying some other flowers too? You know, I was so busy this year. Um, the, uh, these last two years, the pandemic was actually really, really good for the floral industry with all the lockdowns. Uh, people couldn't go and visit their grandma. They weren't, you know, gathering at the parties they weren't, uh, you know, going out to the movies with their aunt for their, uh, you know, birthday or anniversary, or whatever. So a lot of people were sending flowers, you know, as a way to, you know, connect and convey those emotions. Um, and of course, like every other industry, we've been hit by so many supply chain issues and staffing issues. So I, I actually had this. I expanded the dahlias, but I didn't even really grow any zinnias this year. And, and the season prior, I had 700 zinnia seeds in the ground. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely going to expand the dahlias again, because those are the big money maker, uh, as far as like, uh, 
you know, growing uh, for, for the floral industry, but I also want to grow, uh, expand my vegetable garden too. I do keep a little pumpkin patch. Every nice. year I grow uh, some giant pumpkins and uh, in past seasons, I've put up cattle panels, uh, which I've gotten at, uh, what's that store? Tractor Supply Co. They're 16 feet long by four feet high uh, and you bend them into yeah, I mean, a hoop. Yeah, like a little arch, yeah, okay. Into an arch and you just, you know, tack them in on each side with a little post. <clears throat> and uh, I found that uh, squash, decorative squash, small size pumpkins, cucumbers, all trellis. And it's so cool. You walk under that to see something like that. So I'd hope to do that again. Uh, I did another one that had all morning glories on it. Herbs, I like to do herbs. That's one thing that I'm going to uh, certainly expand for use in cut flower arrangements is herbs as a foliage. Dill, fennel, because not only is it pretty, but it introduces another sense into enjoying a floral bouquet, having that fragrance, especially too, because like roses no longer really have the the scent, only a couple varieties actually have a fragrance because the rose breeders have been breeding for vase life. So the roses last longer. They've been breeding for a higher petal count, which keeps the rose tighter, looking younger, fresher instead of blowing open and then only, you know, looking good for a few days. So in achieving a longer vase life and achieving a long, uh, higher petal count, they lost the fragrance along the way. You can't have everything. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that too. It's, it's sad. Cause like it, anyone who's listening has ever walked by like a, an old time kind of rose cultivar. They're super fragrant and, and just amazing. Um, yeah. That's, that's a shame, but yeah, it's, I mean, for, especially for the cup flower industry, it's hard to, it's hard to have the best of both worlds, especially when you're shipping stuff around. That's why it's good to, you know, definitely go to people who, grow as much stuff locally as possible but yeah any any um so you said you had a greenhouse on your property yeah. as well we do actually and it's a built structure that's on a uh, slab uh and <clears throat> it has an attached head house which i guess is the term my grandfather told me for, you know, when you run a business out of a greenhouse, you need to have an office and a little retail spot where you take payments and stuff like that. But that's where the uh, dirt floor bulb cellar is underneath that head house. But it's, oh, geez, I don't know the dimensions off the top of my head on it, but it's, uh, it has like an automatic vent that opens but it's so big, it's actually right now it's closed. After the first of the year, when we, after the huge Christmas holiday is over, we bring all our green plants inside the shop and we close it down because it costs too much to heat. Oh, okay. We, we have an oil furnace in there and we lose money by keeping it open. So we close it down. But for Valentine's Day, 
we're going to open it back up and keep it, keep the heat at like 45. And that's going to be another huge giant walk-in cooler for us. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. good use of the space. Yeah. Yeah. So do you use that to start stuff in the spring too, or are you just kind of using it for, for overflow and stuff like that? Yeah, no, I, uh, I do start my seeds in there. We've got a potting bench in the back. Um, but like, we don't, you know, the plants that we sell, we're such a high, high volume shop. We're probably the largest retail florist in the state of Connecticut. Um, okay. Wow. And for years and years, we were in the top 100, uh, nationwide for sales volume. So, uh, we don't really grow anything from seed inside the greenhouse, unless it's for my garden that's going outside. Um, and even like propagation, like cuttings, we get in finished plants. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. But yeah. So, um, I know, I knew you wanted to talk about, uh, the tobacco. Did you end up? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, I got amazing seeds from you. Um, the propagation rate was incredible. Uh, in fact, you know, it's difficult working with, with such fine seeds because I mean, you always have to thin so much, you know, and it always sort of, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I would prefer to save the seeds and not have to sacrifice so many, but anyway, so yeah, I planted the, uh, planted the seeds and I got a late start on the season. Um, putting them outdoors. I don't remember quite when. And uh, we grew them, we harvested them. They're still drying in the back of the greenhouse. And I was, I was pleased too, because a lot of them that we harvested, the leaves were still green. Although they've dried and cured, not like yellow, they have dried and cured sort of brown. And I'm looking forward to growing the tobacco again next year. I'm definitely going to have them either in large fabric bags or mulched really well. I mean, I did, it was really like, I didn't take care of them or as, as well as I should have, I didn't do any fertilizing anything. And I got these big robust plants that are so, when they are fresh, they, those leaves are so resiny and sticky it i mean it's incredible how resiny and sticky those leaves are and almost like succulent you know like you could feel there's like so much moisture in those leaves uh i did actually have trouble with the tobacco hornworm i had a lot of holes in some of my leaves so next year i got a uh, i guess to look for those right because you could just pick them off and squish them yeah, you can pick um, them off and squish them. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, up here we have the, um, uh, it's like a, I think it's a parasitic wasp if I'm remembering correctly. But um, yeah, we I'll get hornworms like on my tomatoes or my tobacco like once, and I'll have like four or five on there, and then like a week later, I don't even do anything, and I'll have all these little like white, they look like white little egg sacs like all over the back of the uh, caterpillars because it's a. Um, 
the uh, wasp or an insect comes in it and it lays its eggs like right into the um into the caterpillar and it and it you know eats it from the inside out yeah it's so i never really have a problem uh with them but um you could there's there's other ways to control them too uh i don't know if you ever use like um beneficial bacteria like bacillus thuringiensis is a good one bt um i wouldn't spray it in high quantities but because it's, it is harmful to all caterpillars but yeah you could just doing a couple applications of that will definitely save you a lot of time and a lot of hassle dealing with uh hornworms because those things will like put giant holes in a leaf real quick like you know you go out there one day you'll see a few on there and if you don't do anything like two or three days later you got like you know <laughs> like a golf ball shaped hole in the middle of the leaf. I, so. I always laugh at that worm too it's like why do you have to, to take a bite out of every leaf all over the thing can't you just start on one edge and just work your way up yeah. Right. Just, just stay on this one leaf. You can eat as much as you want. Just don't. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, golf ball hole shapes all over, like all the leaves going all the way up and down the plant. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. They're, they're definitely a, a pest for sure. But so the tobacco, um, like I was like sloppy. I, when I'd mow the lawn, like <laughs> there was a few times where I like threw the grass onto the tobacco plant. Like I know now, like definitely don't do that, Carl. Mulch around it and <laughs> throw the grass, not not on the tobacco leaves. But I got to tell you the effects. Uh, I've been smoking out. I got a corn cob pipe at first, but then I got a cherry wood pipe, which I find burns seems to taste nicer. But the effects are like really intoxicating and really uh, appealing. And, uh, you know, there's sort of a little ceremonial aspect to smoking something which you grew from a seed. Uh, and yeah, I'm definitely, definitely expanding how much tobacco I grew last year. I got one college guy that has been working here now for a couple of years who uh, helped me plant it. And so I got him a little uh, cherry wood pipe from Etsy uh, for Christmas so he could smoke it. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So he helped me do it. But um, yeah, the effects are incredible. And so I was also researching on Arrowid. I don't know if you remember that website, Arrowid. Oh, oh, I, I know that site very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spent so a lot I, of time on it back in the day. <laughs> me, me too. So I was like, you know, let me read about, you know, homegrown tobacco experiences. And, you know, to absolutely no surprise, there's all these trip reports and experiences and I was reading one that was really caught my eye and he was talking about how uh, he had the, the trip reporter had read uh, about Native Americans smoking fresh green tobacco, which supposedly has a really intoxicating effect. And I actually had read that you're not supposed to do that because it's got high levels of ammonia. Yep, yep. Yeah, I've heard that too. I read that 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 it would be like a sh shamanic experience with the green green tobacco, but before smoking it, they had to sit underneath a tree because they oftentimes went unconscious. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that happening. Uh, I I get lightheaded. I get lightheaded every time I smoke this tobacco. Did you did you try any of it green, or you just tried it dried? No, although I have been noticing, and I'm wondering if it is, 
by either how aged or how well it was all cured together so it must have been how old the leaves are because some of them are dark brown like a tobacco uh cigar leaf wrapper and other parts are like not quite like a old dried up corn husk but a little bit darker than that not so much yellow a little more khaki colored but i have noticed that some of them have a much more powerful effect than others, but it's always, I mean, I'm talking sometimes when I smoke out of the pipe, I'm like, not only do I feel like I had a couple beers, I feel like I had like 10 beers and I got the spins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're there. Uh, so that's a Virginia smoking tobacco. So that's a traditional, like, you know, um, you know, early, probably I want to say it probably originated in like the mid 1700s, somewhere around there. 18 maybe up to the 1800s but yeah so that's a that's like a classic um smoking variety that was bred and grown in virginia for years and it's definitely um as far as you know potency as far as like the nicotine content in it, it's probably super high because um i don't smoke but like i will use it to make like a little bit of dip for the spring and the summer you know when you're working out there long hours it's nice it's nice to have that in gives you a little extra energy but yeah if i don't if i haven't done it in a while that stuff will like, I, I get too dizzy and I have to spit it out. And I'm like, Oh man, I got to sit down for a minute, you know? And, and like once in a while I'll have somebody, you know, you'll hand me a spliff or something and it, and it never really does anything to me, but like that tobacco is like just real, it's really strong. So yeah, stands the test of time. I gave a couple leaves to tobacco leaves to uh, one of the girls that designs here and uh she smokes American spirits, but I asked her after, you know, a couple of days after I gave, gave her the leaves and said, Oh, did you try it? She's like, yeah, I got to tell you that stuff is really strong. Like I like caught a major buzz as if I had smoked like three American spirits back to back to back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I would actually be <laughs> curious to what they're growing now for uh, commercial tobacco varieties, especially for uh, like American spirit, which is considered a more natural brand. I don't know you know, what, what that really means in the, in the tobacco industry, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what the, what the current varieties are. So yeah, I'll have to, actually, I'll, I'll have to look that up. I'm curious now. Yeah. Well, you, you've shared with me before. I wonder if you'll share it again for your listeners, but I'm also need to grow more tobacco so I can do the dip too. Cause I definitely want to make uh, a couple batches, but uh, tell me about the recipe that you do to make the chew. Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. You can look it up online. Um, I'm probably not going to get it completely right off the top of my head, but I can go over the general, like how you do it. Um, so after you, you know, dry the leaves, um, what you do is you take them and uh, you take like some, well, let, let me get, uh, well, let me, let me think about it for a second. So, yeah. So you need like a, like cast iron pan or some type of large, you know, pan or, or, or something to cook with basically that can keep a decent volume of uh, liquid in it and, you know, keep the tobacco leaves in it. And then you put in some, you know, organic juice or, or, or a high quality fruit juice, like uh, cranberry or apple. And you kind of cook that down and you make almost like a syrup out of it. And then you add in a little bit of like blackstrap molasses, and then you put in the tobacco leaves, the dried tobacco leaves, and you kind of just cook that down slowly um, not, not a ton of heat cause you don't want to burn it or anything, but you just kind of want to like incorporate it all, start breaking down some of the, the compounds in the, uh, in the tobacco and also get that flavor in there. 
And then uh, after it's been cooked down for a while, um, you know, you turn it off the heat, let it cool, and then you can drain off any excess liquid um, and then, you know, pack it into jars um, because you want to let it sit and uh, cure uh, in the jar for usually a couple weeks. So, you know, put your pack into a mason jar to the top. You don't want a ton of air in there, but you can even take a little bit of leftover liquid and top it off if you want. Yeah. And then let that sit for, for a couple weeks and, and yeah, it's, it's good and good and ready to go. And those will last for a long time too. Those jars, um, you know, if, if you cooked you it right, in the fridge? you don't have to, no, I just leave them on the counter and let them, you know, let the curing process kind of keep going. I'm sure, you know, so- everything's still breaking down and so is it fermenting? It probably is. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that there's some type of fermenting, you know, fermentation going on in there. Um, because I mean, traditionally, like after you dried your tobacco, you definitely want to ferment it somehow. Um, and that's usually kind of hard unless you're doing a large volume or do you have like a space that can keep the right temperature and humidity for a long period of time. And I feel like this is a good way to get that kind of fermentation but it's, it's a lot easier and it, and it works well with like, um, homegrown tobacco. So, um, that's, that's what I do instead of trying to smoke it. I'm not a, I'm not a big smoker. Um, so, so, so so how about you title this episode probiotic chewing tobacco? (laughs) There we go. (laughs) But yeah, it tastes kind of, I don't know if anyone's familiar with like red men or something like that, like the old kind of chewing tobaccos, but it, that's what it's like. Um, except to me, it's like way more flavorful. Cause you could do like, you know, any type of juice you want that you like. So I usually do yeah. apple and it's like, you can definitely, you can definitely taste it. Um, yeah, but that it sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's good in the spring or summer, you're working outside, you know, you just worked eight hours. You got another four hours to go you know, pack, pack a lip of that and keep on, keep pack, on, a lip keep on. And pack a lip in and dig 200 holes for dahlias. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else on tobacco you want to, you want to talk about or. No, well, you know, we mentioned the tobacco hornworm. I wonder about pests. If you have pest issues up there, because um, that is one thing that I noticed that I have down here a lot of Japanese beetles and grubs, uh, the tobacco hornworm, um, aphids on the nasturtium. I always got to put out a sacrificial plant far away for the aphids to go on there. And then it seems the ladybugs never seem to come until too late in the season. Um, And then all my outdoor grows I've ever done focus of cannabis, have always been attacked by the hemp borer. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, I'll, I'll talk about the tobacco first. Yeah. And then we can get into cannabis. Um, but the, yeah, the other, the other big pest I have on tobacco is aphids. And I, every single year get a ton of black aphids right at the top, right where the flowers are forming. And I just kind of let them do their thing. Cause they're not really on the leaves. They just, they just want to be on like that stem with that new growth with the flowers. And it never really affects the, um, you know, the health of the, the flower as far as it forming seed, but for whatever reason, I mean, those aphids are just like completely attracted to it. They're never on anything else. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, a tobacco specific aphid, but yeah, every year I have them and I've tried to deal with them and it, it just never works out. So I just kind of just don't do anything now. Um, but yeah, so uh, as far as cannabis goes, yes, those borers are a pain. 
because you don't really see them. And then next thing you know, you got like all this frass coming out of the joint of a stem right where it branches. And then if you don't catch it in time, you go out there after it's rained or something and that branch is broken, it's hanging and it's just, yeah, it's, it's a pain. So yeah. Um, BT is a really, that's really helpful for that. Like, especially early in the season before, uh, everything kind of goes full into flower, hit, hit them a couple times with that. Um, yeah. Or, and, and just good scouting too, you know, um, keep, keep an eye on those plants, especially where, you know, where the joints are, where are, and where the nodes are, where there's, where there's branching definitely keep an eye on, on those spots. Cause that's where they like to burrow the most. I, it seems like. Yeah. The hemp borer. And then it, uh, it winds up every flower gets bud rot. Yeah. Yeah. They like eat into the stem and they, they go up through the stem. So it just totally kills like all the tissue inside the stem. So the plant can't, you know, cycle nutrients and, and, and water and, and sap within the plant correctly. And it, yeah, it definitely causes a lot of botrytis because there's, you know, an open wound there. So, you know, bacteria and fungi are getting in. So yeah, not, they're, they're definitely a pain. I did read that um, it's a caterpillar and it, the only way that it gets to the plant is it has to crawl up. So I have read, you can take double-sided tape and wrap it around the stem and as it's trying to crawl up the stem it'll get stuck so i'm going to try that next year too okay yeah i don't know how i don't know if that's true or not because they're i mean the eggs are laid by a moth so i don't know if they're laying the eggs at the base of the plant i'd have to go look that up again because i don't know if it's off my head but if they're laying the eggs on the stems then, or undersized of leaves, you know, you might not catch, might not catch them. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting that you say that because um, that was something else that I was thinking about really uh, when you asked me to be on the podcast and like talk about growing in Connecticut and, you know, experience with, with gardening and growing. And that would be, if I gave any advice to anybody or anybody asked me, what's my personal experience in my life been with growing? What have I learned? What would be the single most thing? And that's, you can research any subject and you can actually probably find a hundred different explanations or reasons. Even we've already touched on this on dahlias. Oh, you have to pack them in peat moss and you have to go down and lightly mist them every two weeks. Or you can just put them in a cardboard box, you know, and have the same results. But really, there's no substitute for experience. You have to go out there and get your hands dirty. You have to put those seeds out on the paper plate and label them. You have to just go out, you know, you can read and watch so many YouTube videos and listen to so many podcasts, but until you go out there and open up that squash flower and take the pollen and go over to the other one, you know, and see what happens. Or for example, too, like, you know, I saw so many videos on no-till gardening, no-till gardening. It's this amazing thing. And then I actually got an account with chip drop, which I would highly suggest for you or any of your listeners you can get free wood chips delivered, chipdrop.com. 
Um, but for me, the, uh, you know, no-till didn't work. I tried it and I find I have better success, you know, in the ground, but yeah, you know, there's no substitute for going out there and trying, seeing what works, see what doesn't next year, do more of what worked, try something new again, see if that works. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you want to talk any more about cannabis, like what kind of varieties and stuff, um, you've grown or, or kind of anything more about that. I, you know, I have very little experience to be honest. I've, okay. <laughs> I, I've, I've done, uh, in the past, the gorilla grows, which I drew, I grew monstrous, monstrous, huge, like, eight, nine foot tall Christmas trees that I lost to the hemp borer. Um, and this past year I grew just, uh, I would, I, I, I brought a clone out, a few clones out and I did what's called a swamp bucket where I took the fabric bags out to like a sort of marshy swamp area. And I laid down all the, the, uh, the reeds all the way around it. And I put these fabric bags down on this muck with the uh, amended soil and the fabric bags. And I came out and harvested it. I didn't go out there and water, fertilize anything. And I had a really nice uh, uh, sour diesel and uh, one other, I think it was uh, 10th planet were the two clones that I had, but then it was like six other plants I had out there all were lost to hemp or, uh, and even anything that looked like it might've had bud rot or part of the, the hemp borer had, I, it had gotten to all these other plants too. So I had very little that I saved. Uh, so anyways, that's a long way of saying I have no experience growing <laughs> cannabis. <laughs> no, that actually sounds like a really good idea. Um, I might have to, I might have to try that. Um, cause I got a lot of, my property is kind of a weird shaped. It's like a, it's like a bowl and like my house sits up on top. And then I have like a, a stream that runs, runs through the middle down and back. And so, um, I have a lot of forest and stuff and I, and I have like one spot where I grow, but in the back, it just gets so it's always wet. And this year it was super wet. So, um, you know, some plants loved it. Some plants did not. I had standing water in uh, part of my garden and uh, my eggplant did not like that at all and pretty much all died. And it was like 40 plants. So <laughs> it wasn't, no. it wasn't good. but, uh, but it, like, you know, my beans and stuff like cucumbers, squash, they all loved it. They couldn't get enough of the water. Um, so, but I'll have to try that. Um, I'll do a couple bags back, um, and, and, uh, kind of like on the, on the bank of where the stream is and see where it's, where it's kind of muddy and, uh, see how that works. But yeah. I thought, I don't know. It sounds like a good technique to me. Just gotta it. When I was reading about swamp buckets, the original tech said that you took out, uh, four, uh, like four or five T posts and hammered them into a sort of circle shape and then ran chicken wire around that. And then stuffed all leaves and uh, soil inside that in the swamp. Oh, okay. And then like planted on top of all that stuff, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's some real old school stuff, eh? I guess, you know, whatever works, man. Especially when you're yeah, doing I the grill growth back in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about or, uh, or we could start wrapping up? Yeah, there was one other thing I, I wondered about you. I've, uh, and that's gardening by the moon. And that's something oh, okay. that I came across in the last few. Uh, and I mean, you could probably do an entire podcast on that. But I have noticed that there is something to that. There's definitely something to it. And not only about the barren days, best day to plant for underground root growth, best days to plant for medicinal flowers or medicinal herbs. And I've even noticed on like certain days when it says best days to harvest, like I've gone out and harvested, um, for example, uh, spinach on days when it says it's a, a good harvest day for spinach. And when you, when you harvest it and you take a bite, even the stem, there's like juice. It's so succulent and so juicy and you can taste the minerals. And then on days when it says it's barren and it says it's a good day for weeding, not to plant, it's a good day to weed and, and kill pests and stuff like that. And if you harvest on those days, the, the uh, spinach, it's like instantly wilting. It doesn't even keep if you like go and put it in a refrigerator. Yeah. Um, I, so I file, I, I did follow, um, biodynamic practices for a couple of years. And then for a few years after that, I didn't really do them as much as just kind of like be aware of them. You know, I used to, I used to get the, um, bio, the yearly, uh, biodynamic calendar and just kept it up and looked at it and used it as kind of a reference point. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about it. I think some of it really does hold true and other stuff. It's kind of like, some of it gets so minute that I don't really think, you know, it matters, but yes, I, I'm going to agree with you though, that like the moon cycle definitely does have an effect on plants and it definitely has an effect on animals and, you know, and if it's affecting plants and animals, it's affecting entire ecosystems. So there is something there. Um, yeah, some, some of the harvesting and, and stuff, some of those days, cause I've, when I was really into it, we'd have days where it was like supposed to be like a perfect harvest day and it'd be like, you know, 95 degrees outside and it was just like scorching <laughs> hot and i'm like well <laughs> you know i don't know i guess you know and it, it wasn't you know two days ago it was a way better harvest day but as far as there being like kind of a yeah yeah like it's like you know a cycle with you know how you know how things reproduce and how like the you know the moon or even how the light like sunlight hitting off the moon reflecting back like affects plant growth and stuff. Yeah. Like there's, there's definitely something there. Um, but yeah, I, I dived kind of deep into it and then I just, it's just so much to take in that I really haven't like gone back into it, but yeah, I still, I still kind of reference some of it, you know, once in a while. Um, and I think a lot of like the biodynamic preparations and stuff are, are really useful and that, and, and just that way of thinking too, like, I feel like a lot of the, the kind of Korean natural farming stuff, like all that kind of intersects, it really does. Um, you know, doing the stuff with like, um, burying it, like the, the cow horn with manure in it and then digging it back out and then making a preparation from that. I feel as like you're, you're making definitely making some type of compost tea or some type of, you know, bioavailable nutrient 
source, you know what I mean? From having manure in that cow and whore, you're probably getting calcium. There's different microbes that are living there, especially if you're burying it in like the winter time, those microbes are, are, aren't being as dormant as they would normally. And then if you're spraying that first thing in the spring, you know, you're getting this flush of life from all these microbes going out and being way more active than everything else. That's kind of just still thawing out on the surface. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a ton of stuff. Um, and that's, and that's a huge rabbit hole too. You could go down with, with, um, yeah, with the whole thing, but yeah. And, and Rudolf Steiner too. I don't know if you've ever, um, listened to any of his lectures or, or read any of his work or kind of his, his other thoughts on stuff, because some of it's super interesting and I've, I've listened to a couple, um, was he, but yeah. was he the one that, that built the cloud buster machine? Um, I'm not familiar with that. Well, but, maybe not. Okay. But he, um, oh, was he living water, Rudolf Steiner? What's that? What was that again? Was he living water or energetic water? Or to tell me who's Rudolf Steiner? Yeah, that, that might have been one of his. He was, um, so he was like a German. I don't want to call him like a scientist, but he was kind of into like medicine and, um, I guess you call him like, it's kind of like a, a spiritual scientist in a way, but he was really into like a medicine, health, ecosystem, spirituality, understanding God, um, that sort of thing. And he, and he, I want to say it was early 1900s. So a lot of his talks were, I think a lot of stuff for the biodynamics was, I want to say it was 1920s, something like that. I might be off a little bit with the date, but, um, but yeah, he lectured a lot about how, you know, the moon and the planets have, you know, energies and, you know, they definitely have an impact on, you know, life and biology here. Um, he was also talking about things at that time that they were still kind of working on like germs and, and uh, you know, microbes and stuff like that. And he kind of had definitely had a sense of how that stuff worked. Um, I don't agree with everything he said, because there's some other stuff that was kind of like way out there that I don't necessarily agree with, but he definitely was, he had, he had, he had something, you know, something there that was definitely the truth, you know? Um, yeah, but just really interesting stuff. He also had lectures too about, um, you know, Christianity and holistic health and, you know, you know, just that more holistic mindset, like all these other things, you know, how, how, you know, environment, ecosystem, spiritual health, the diet, how they affect the human body, how they you know, affect, you know, relationships with other people, stuff like that. But yeah, look him up. He's he's definitely a very very interesting and pro, uh, prolific writer and thinker. Yeah, I shall. And uh, you mentioned planets, but I hold to uh, I call them wandering stars, as the ancients did. I've come to, a, and I could, oof, I, not to go on a huge tangent, but <laughs> I. I hold to an ancient scriptural worldview. So I don't believe in planets. I believe actually the sun and moon, not only are they in each in our atmosphere, but I, I think each one of us experiences our own sun and moon. Somehow they always face each one of us. And I haven't quite worked out. Does each one of us, that is a man, woman, and child experience our own sun and moon? Because animals, pets certainly, move into the sunlight and uh sunflowers also follow the sun right so uh but the sun and the moon are quite mysterious even even the moonlight too it's so cold now but 
uh, in the winter, you can really experience this. If you go into the direct moonlight, it's colder than if you're in the shade. It's the opposite of the moon, uh, the opposite of the sun. In the summertime, if you go in the hot sun, it's it's scorching and you go in the shade and it's a little cooler. But now in the wintertime, if you uh, you go out into the cold moonlight, you're colder. And if you step into the shade, it's a couple degrees warmer. But just like, uh, you know, we've already talked about, you can hear, you can read uh, something on a blog, you can listen to something on a podcast or on a YouTube video, but you got to experience it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I know we've chatted. Yeah. I know we've chatted about like a few things and yeah, we could definitely do a whole, maybe we should sometime just go down like uh, some esoteric rabbit holes and talk about, uh, worldviews and and all that stuff because yeah i don't i don't have what you would consider um a a post-enlightenment worldview that's that's for sure (laughs) so uh, but yeah that's that's a whole other conversation um but yeah man i was it was good talking to you um uh so before we before we go um i always ask two questions to um first-time guests and i know you kind of touched on it before but um What's one? Uh, well, let's start with this one. Uh, so, what is your favorite tool or piece of equipment at your at your uh, I guess at your uh, floral shop? But it could also be in the garden. The most utilitarian and one I use the most is actually called a potato fork, and it's a shovel with a handle, but it's it's like a giant fork. It's, it's not a shovel that's got a flat pan. It's got the spikes like a uh, potato and I get like a fork. And I guess it was for digging potatoes so that you wouldn't totally slice through it when you were uh, hunting for potatoes. But I like it too, because if you uh, uh, are digging a hole and there's a rock in there, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be easier to remove the rock. The rock might get stuck between the tines, but that one gets the, and it's shorter too. It doesn't have a long handle. It's got like a maybe half length um, a pole on it with the handle on the top. But that's the one tool that gets the most work besides, of course, my pocket knife. I, but that's always in my pocket every day of the year, folding the pocket knife. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Actually, uh, my buddy Lars, that's what he said was a digging fork. And cause you could, yeah, I, and I, I use it all the time. I, I mean, some people use them to like turn over beds, harvest stuff, you know, harvest those you know, dahlia tubers doing whatever, you know, it's pretty, pretty versatile. You can do a lot with it, but yeah, it's a good one. Um, and then the other question is, or well, wh- what word of advice or wisdom would you like to give all the growers, farmers, and gardeners out there? Yeah, you got to try it, whether it's you get an arrow garden uh, or you go and get a succulent for a house plant. Um, right now is mid-January, so you should be having the seed catalogs come in the mail. Uh, dog ear all your pages and, and put your order in early. Uh, definitely go to Focus Seeds. Is that the website? Focusseeds.com? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Focus, yeah. <laughs> Focusseeds.com. 
and you know what? I would highly, highly, highly suggest that everyone buy a package of tobacco seeds and grow tobacco seeds, even if it's just for the novelty of growing tobacco, but especially anybody that's growing cannabis and smoking cannabis, like, come on, for however much a pack of seeds is, a few dollars, you can, I mean, you could grow hundreds of tobacco plants, but all you need is one and you could roll your own blunt with your own homegrown tobacco leaf. Uh, and I mean, it's prolific. It produces so much. So yeah, definitely get out there and garden, get your seeds uh, early because just like last season, there's more gardeners, things are going to sell out. You know, if you're thinking about getting something, order it, go to focus seeds and get your tobacco seeds too. That's one thing everyone should be growing this year for a new different crop, something to try. Cool. Well, do you have any, um, way for people to contact you or follow you, you know, your plugs, social media, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, so my Instagram page is called ganja reviews, two Oh three ganja G A N J J A reviews, two Oh three. I'm down here in Fairfield uh, County, Connecticut. Um, and the name of my flower shop is city line florist. So we've got an Instagram and a web page. So if you have anybody ever is down this way, um, we're in Trumbull, Connecticut, and on Fridays we do 50% bouquets. So if you stop in the shop, all our cut flowers are half price. So we started doing that maybe like uh, four years ago to celebrate our 100th anniversary. And it's been such a big hit with our customers. We do that every Friday. Wow, man, 100 years. That's that's great. You said three generations. So, yeah. I, I'm the fourth generation. Oh, fourth generation. And wow. Like, that's, that's awesome. Yep. Yeah. Up and we're 104 years now. Cool. All right. Well, it was great talking with you, Carl. Great talking with you too, Focus. And I wondered too if I could just uh, ask a quick prayer of blessing for you and your family, for you and your podcast, uh, for your ministry of gardening and seed saving and, you know, expanding uh, knowledge about uh, gardening and expanding. Uh, uh, you know, sort of homesteading values and things like that, uh, you know, and that God will uh, deepen and enrichen your faith and uh, a blessing for all your listeners on your podcast, that they'll be uh, healthy and happy and that they'll especially have uh, uh, success with their gardening season this upcoming year. Yeah. Amen. All right. Amen, brother. Well, that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Carl for coming on. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Focus Seeds or visit my website, focusseeds.com. Happy growing. Peace.